airmen's stationed around the world control a large portion of the Navy's paper flow. With that responsibility, the yeoman must essentially become a subject matter expert for just about anything the Navy puts on paper. I'm Derek Clark, and you're listening to Longest War. Thank you for joining us on Longest War. On this episode, we'll be speaking with former Navy operational yeoman Derek Clark. Did I say that right? Yeah, you said it perfect. Pittsburgh, born and raised from yeah. Homewood, right? Yeah. Homewood, any slippery. Shout out to Pittsburgh, Stiller Nation. <laughs> Can't say Pittsburgh without mentioning Stillers around me, but um, how old were you when you joined? I was a little older when I got in the military. I was around 20, 27, maybe. 27. 27, 28. Yeah, I missed the cutoff because I was going to try to do SEAL, and he told me I was too old. So <laughs> I was around 27. Did you know you wanted to go in the Navy like as a kid? Did you know you wanted to join the military? No, man, it's crazy. My uncle, there's a legend. My uncle, we didn't have no uncles. My grandma had five daughters, and then my uncle Gene, rest in peace, he was in the Navy, and there was always a story about how he got attacked by a tiger and killed him. So growing up, you know, we heard the story all the time. His pictures were all on my grandmother's wall. And I kind of admired it. The whole family did. We admired him for his service, even more so than my father. My father went to the Army, but he, he wasn't in my life a lot. Um, so we kind of just looked up to my uncle, you know, all of us men in the family, like our whole lives. And uh, my brother, my older brother, joined the Marines. He went on a buddy system with my uncle's son. They joined the Marines. And so my house became like a wall of Marines and then my uncle's picture up there. And so right before I joined the Navy, uh, I looked at a few different branches. When I went to the Air Force, they wanted me to either be a pilot or an aviator, and I was afraid of heights at the time. I hadn't really flown much, so I was like, hell no, I'm not doing that. And the Marines, of course, I wasn't going to follow after their footsteps, but they needed officers immediately. Like, they they told you pretty much, you come in, you're going right over. And so I wasn't too sure about that, and so I thought about my uncle and figured I'd put a different picture on my grandmother's wall out of us young men. And so I joined the Navy pretty much for those reasons. But you went to college first. Yeah, I went to college first, Duquesne University in Pittsburgh. So I guess the question would be, well, why didn't you go the officer route? Why did you enlist? I did officer. I was supposed to go into the officers. A long, well, not a long story. So I joined, signed up in California. I was going to go through OCS from Pittsburgh. But after I graduated college, I felt like something was missing. My dad left when I was about eight or nine years old and moved to California. He met some woman and moved there for like 30 years. And so throughout all the things I did in my life, it's because I did a lot of good things while I was growing up. I just thought that something was missing after I graduated. And I moved to California with my dad. And then uh, while I was there, my cousin got killed, uh, my best cousin. So the family kind of begged me not to come home, stay in California and get myself together because I had a degree as a first in the family to graduate college, especially university. So I ended up moving back out there with my dad. And uh, that's when I joined the military. So you were going the officer route. Right. But you ended up enlisting. Oh, yeah. So, so I was supposed to go to OCS when I went out of California. The recruit out there was shady. And uh, as they all are. And I didn't know this before I went in. I was listening to everything they told me. Right. We all did. I had my package <laughs> together. He was telling me he had me acting like I was talking to uh, officer uh, recruiters. And uh, come to find out, he needed me in for his quota. And so he told me, listen, man, we're going to get you enlisted once you get to boot camp. Don't worry about it. You'll get an OCS. This is the best way to go right now. We got this thing called the debt program where you can wait a year. And that was important to me because I had just moved from Pittsburgh to California. So he was like, hey, if you go debt, we can keep you out a year and then you can you know, go to OCS as soon as you get in, which was not the truth. I went to boot camp and found that out. Um, but they still tried to help me out once I got to boot camp because they thought that was fucked up and they knew I had a degree. Um, so they helped me put together my package there and then my first duty station caught a DUI. So that was it. It was over. Where was your first duty station? My first duty station was Pensacola, Florida. Pensacola, NAS. Pensacola. NAS. Yeah. 
How'd you like it down there? I, I mean, I loved it there. See, when I came into the military, I went in as a T CTT, Crypto Technological Technician. But when I did my interview in boot camp, I had uh, like $40,000 in school loans that the military said they would cover. So when I did my interview, everything was sweet. And it was crazy because I thought I was a shoo-in. Coming from the inner city with a predominantly black neighborhood, and my, the lady doing the interview was black, and I was, you know, I, I thought I had all the credentials, I thought I spoke well, I thought I carried myself well. And she said, you know what, how much do you owe in school loans? And I said about forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000. She said, uh, you may sell those to the Chinese. I'm sorry, we can't take you. And I was like, what? I'm not selling nothing to the Chinese. But she was dead ass serious, stern yeah. on her face. And that was the end of that interview. And so since I did well, they wanted me to be a nuke and I didn't want to do the nuke program. Luckily, I was 6'2", and I think one of the cutoffs was around 6'6", six 6'2", six because of subs and whatever. So I didn't do that, and I, I chose air traffic controller. And so I went down to NAS Pensacola in aviation for air traffic control school. And then right when I was about to graduate, I was uh, I had two roommates at the time on, on base. They went out that night. I think I had an exam or something the next morning, so I didn't go. And so when they came in, I could hear a commotion, but I heard somebody moaning like, uh, uh, uh. So I knew they were drunk. I'm like, what's going on? It didn't sound like no, you know, sex or nothing. It sounded like someone moaning like, uh. I get up. I go in the bathroom. My roommate cut this arm 18 times, slashes to his wrist. This one 15 times. So there was blood all over the place. He's sitting in the tub with his rosary beads in the Bible, bleeding like hell. There's blood all over the shower curtains, all over the walls. So my first thing is like, oh, you all right? What's going on? Let me take care of him. So I didn't want him to get in trouble because we were all in boot camp. So what I did is I wrapped him up real, real tight on his arms with towels. And I took the time to take bleach and wipe the bathroom up and wipe it clean and wipe the um, shower curtain and get all the blood up. I take him down on the quarter deck, first floor. Normally, they we're not allowed out that time of night, but I had a little pool with the guys down here. So I just wrapped him up and act like we were going to go smoke a cigarette. Bought another man's car and drove him off base to NAS Pensacola Hospital. When I got there, uh, you know, everyone came, CO, everyone. And they talked to me, asked me what happened. I told them what happened. So they quarantined me when I got back to base in the room because NCIS came, duct taped me. I couldn't even go back into my room. So I was there for two days in that room. Then they found, they kept coming and talking to me, asked me what happened. But then the guy survived, he lived. So now they were happy he lived, but they let us know he's he's gone somewhere, he's out of here. And they asked me, why did I clean up the mess? And so I told them, I didn't know, you know, I didn't want him to get in trouble. Then they asked me how come I didn't go down to the quarter deck and get the OOD or someone to come assist me because you got to use your chain of command. But my thing was like this, I didn't know how much time this guy had to live. I was gonna get him to the hospital by any means necessary. So they had me talking to the chaplain. They couldn't decide what to do. They wanted to reward me and want me, wanted me to talk to the whole command because at that time suicide was very serious in the military. So they figured it's a great way for me to go out and talk to the whole command about suicide and what I saw and how I reacted and stuff like that. So the chaplain agreed, you know, that that was probably the best thing to do. But then the CEO and some other people was like, hey, hold on. He did not follow chain of command. We cannot kind of reward him for not following chain of command, even though I did, a, you know, the honorable thing. Right. So what they did is instead of rewarding me and giving me the opportunity to speak and give me some kind of reward, they sent me straight to NAS Meridian without telling nobody as a way, I guess, to clear it, cover it up. And I was gone. So I lost my air traffic control school because of that, which was fucked up. I had like two weeks left. And um, went in there for Meridian and picked Yeoman. And uh, I actually graduated top of school, not just my class. So once I did that, they sent me to NES Lamore, California. And I was attached to VFA-137 Strike Fighter Squadron with the uh, F-18s, the Hornets, Super Hornets. And uh, I did Yeoman for, you know, paperwork for about maybe six months. And the, they got this job called Operation Yeoman, which we'll get in. The person that was doing it was leaving, so they picked me to do the job. So what is that? Operational yeoman, what do they do exactly? A yeoman is like a paper pusher. They handle all the personnel, uh, you know, office stuff, you know, shit that goes on in the office, whether it's records, 
writing memos, anything, anything, answering telephones, just taking care of the people in your squadron or your command. What the operational development does is we deal with the pilots, whether we got to lock their flight hours, whether they did touch and goes, go arounds, like anything they had to do to go into their logs, because pilots keep detailed logs of everything they do. We log them into their logs and into a program called SHARP 5.1, which is a computer-based program. So at wartime, whenever we do like 100 sorties, 40 sorties a day, sortie is like when a pilot goes out and drop bombs and come back whenever they're needed. We just log down what bomb they dropped, whether it was a JDAM or whatever, how close they came to their target, whether it was a direct hit or how far off they came, and pretty much the flight hours that they log at the time and the campaigns that they're in. How would you get that information on whether they hit the target or not? Actually, we would have to watch the videos. So the pilots would come in the ready room, they record every every mission, and then the ready room suite, if anyone's been on the carrier, got like movie seating, big, big screen TV, and then you'd sit there and actually watch the bombs. And then they also had a, another program that they used that would tell us directly, you know, pretty much what it was, uh, however close they got, and then we would input that into their books. And then This was in the uh, Persian Gulf? Yeah, we were in, yeah, we had to, we did a lot of relief for the Marines. So Iran had a no-fly zone. So we'd have to go up and, and then provide relief to those in Iraq when they needed it. And then if they called us over to Afghanistan, because they had no fly zone, we'd have to drive all the way down around India and go up into Afghanistan and provide support up there. So it was a bunch of back and forth. All right, so like I've been on the ground before and watched JDAMs drop. What does that shit look like from above, man? Because from the ground, it's fucking gnarly, it's dude. It's the craziest <laughs> shit, and that's where a lot of my PTSD comes from because I still see some visions. There was just some of the some of the bombs I really, you know, hit home only because I was a religious guy, and after watching this shit every day, you know, the pilots are happy. They're high-fiving and clapping. And we're on the ground. We're doing the same yeah, shit, man. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but after a while, you just it, it gets you sometimes. But from the sky, it looks like you see crosshairs. You'll see whatever target it is, and then you see the target, and then just a big cloud of smoke, and it's gone. Is it like the black and white, like thermal It's like grayish white soap. I mean, so smoke, just a big, because you know sand over there, so it's just a big yeah. cloud of smoke, and it stays there for a while, you know, by the time the pilot's gone. So they've got a camera on the bird. There's a camera on the bird, I believe, but I think what we see is from the pilot's view. Oh, so like so when he's- crosses, whatever the pilot sees. Gotcha. Yeah, so. Damn, that shit's wild. Yeah, it's crazy. I didn't know that there were guys watching on a ship in the Persian Gulf, like <laughs> we were calling in JDAMs on dudes. Yeah. I'm out now, so there was a lot of stuff because of my clearance I wasn't allowed to discuss, but I'm sure, I mean, people know, you can go on YouTube and see some of this stuff now, it's crazy. Oh yeah, WikiLeaks, man, has yeah. released so much shit. Yeah. Did you like that job? I loved the job at first. You understand, like, I did two tours, one seven month and one nine month. So the first tour is when I pretty much took over, and I had to learn the job and learn the different bombs and stuff like that, because I was a yo, man, we didn't know that stuff, so I started hanging out with a lot of the AOs and learning, you know, different bombs, and uh, first tour was tough for me so I asked to come back early because it was stressful for me at first learning doing that job but second tour I tried to get out and they wouldn't let me they wouldn't let no one else take over so I just learned to love it after a while you start to hear the radio calls like Marines will actually call in for support so after a while you just feel like you're doing your job so yeah as long as I'm proficient they're proficient so so how many years did you do total I did four I did four years two tours and got out what, what rank did you make while you were in? Well, that's funny. When I got my DUI, I was supposed to go up to E2, which is, if anyone knows, is a petty officer second class. E5, I'm sorry, petty officer second class. I passed the test, scored, and was supposed to get it put on. But because the incident happened, even though I, I passed after the incident, I mean, before the incident, because it happened before it got pinned on me, they took it and then gave me half months pay times two, dropped me all the way back down to E3. Did you get extra duty, any of that stuff? Yeah, I got half months paid times 45, 45? 45 days restriction. I had ex Well, they tried to give me extra duty, but after my restriction, they needed me back because we were we were about to go right back over. So right. we, our turnover time wasn't that long. So 
they just you know made me pretty much apologize for everything and the half months pays the killer man because kill- you ain't making shit for money to begin with yeah that was the killer and then our you know uh i think my first i couldn't come off off the ship one time in singapore so i think the first two instead of giving me extra duty they was like all right the first two ports your ass is on here well, that may have made up for the money, though, because you saved what you would have spent you know it. <laughs> on shore, man. Sure did. <laughs> ended up saving that shit. I sure did, man. Those, especially Singapore. I love four floors of horrors, man. That's just crazy. <laughs> it's a mall out there. It's unbelievable. So you did four years. Did you ever think about reenlisting? Yeah, I was going to reenlist, but because uh, when I got out, I came back home. I got in a little trouble when I came home. During wartime, they let me come home and see my brother. He had got stabbed. One of my dad's sons, not my real brother. And so when I came home. To I California? Was, this is Pittsburgh. Oh, okay. My family's originally from Pittsburgh. My dad just moved out there. Ah. When I came home, my little brother, he had got stabbed. So they they let me come home. If anybody know in the war, you don't they don't let you come home for shit. Um, Get that Red Cross bad. message. Yeah, yeah. So I came home. I think they figured I needed a break anyway. And then my little brother, which is crazy, my real little brother, we're one year apart, same birthday, so we fought all the time growing <laughs> up. He's drunk. And uh, he went, we went out. We both got drunk. I almost seemed like he was the only one drunk. But I had to get back. I had my family at his house, my girl, my, my new daughter. He had his girl there. And he wanted to use me, you know, say he was out with me so he could mess with another chick. You know what I mean? Typical guy. My brother's home. We out. But so um, I was like, no, I got to get back to the house. So I went back to the house while he was with the chick. He comes back to the house and tries to stunt and act like, oh, man, you left me. I'm, I'm like, man, what are you talking about, man? We out. You know what I mean? We're leaving. I'm about to leave tomorrow. So he acted like he wanted to pick a fight with me. I'm thinking he's just throwing off for, throwing off for his girl. But. He socked me while I got my baby in my hand, and I hit him and knocked him out. And the cops came, and they thought I was the aggressor because I was trying to wake him up. I was just pissed this happened, like, yo, what, you know. And then, uh, of course, my command had to know because they took me to jail, and I had to be on a plane that morning. So luckily, you know, I don't got no real record or nothing, and uh, I knew someone down in jail. And my girl at the time was at him, and her dad's a chief warrant officer at four in the Navy. Made some calls, and they got me out, and I went back. Well, the command member had got my DUI before I went over there. So the command was kind of disappointed in me, I'll be honest. And they were like, listen, here's what we're going to do. We'll sweep the center rug, but we're going to take your security clearance, which killed me. I mean, I thought it was a low blow, but I kind of understand, you know, we're at wartime and I was in jail. What if I didn't make it back? So, sure. And they needed me for my job. No one else could do it. I didn't train no one yet. So I kind of sucked it up. But when they was like, yo, um, you know, you could pick any other job. I was just like, you know what? They were like, we can give you six years shore duty. You know, they're trying to make it sweet because my captain loved me. I mean, I worked with all lieutenant commanders. And, you know, everyone loved me. But the enlisted side was like, hey, we got to do something about this. You know, that's what was the enlisted side were, were the ones. Cause it's they, always the master chief, right? Yeah, master chief. Exactly. My chief, my master chief. Just because they hated on me because I, I was no longer under a chain of command. You know, if, I, if they needed me for support, if they needed me to come to a watch for them or whatever, I'd do it. But as soon as they tried to railroad me or something, I'd just go to my lieutenant commander. Sure. And so I guess this was like, all right, we can stick it to him now, you know, which was fucked up. And so instead of taking another job, I just got it early out. Uh, and they gave, they hooked me up, gave me all my honorable, my reduction of force, all that shit. So it was cool. So what'd you do once you got out? When I got out, I promoted music, man. I used to be, a, I used to bring a lot of major artists to the city. I had a website called, w, well, raphead.com, www.raphead.com. So I'll check it out. You'll see my head on there with headphones, just, <laughs> just like this, leaning and shit. Me and my buddy, when we was in college, started this because I used to do parties. And for some reason, my parties always be packed. Like my first party, I charged five dollars at the door and made like thirty one hundred, and I started letting people in free. Like after that, it was crazy. Right, because I, I was from Pittsburgh and I went to Duquesne and I played football for Duquesne, and then I had to pick, you know, pit athletes and Carlo, and I just knew so many people around the city that I can get people to a party. So we was like, all right, let's, you know, let's do this website and help people promote their music. And so it just happened we knew Wiz Khalifa and we used him as our focal point on our website. So 
when I was in the military, every city I went to, every country I went to, I passed my business cards out. So now people from all over the country were joining our website. So I thought that was it. So when I got out, I stuck with it. I was vice president. Did it for six years, but then I learned quick that that music business got a side that I didn't want no part of. Uh, one of my buddies got killed, and I was like, it's over. So it's cutthroat. That, I, yeah, it's cutthroat. It was fun. And more so, I was spending more money, my own money, than making money. We were doing it for the love, you know, the music, the love of business, the love of helping people out, trying to connect people together. And then after a while, it was just... I figured I didn't want to do that no more. I'm not a rapper, so. Right. You know what I mean? I was behind the scenes, but they could have all that, and I'm cool. But we didn't just deal with rap music, so I shouldn't say that. We dealt with DJs, models, you know, bands. It was just, it just took, I lost my family because of this. So after a while, I was just like, all right, enough is enough. What year did you get out of the Navy? I got out in 2008 on Halloween, October 31st. Damn, so, yeah. Just, just the recent anniversary of your ETS. Yeah. All right, so that takes us to 2013. Yeah. So eight years, 2008, then you did six years of production, then then what for you? Then I decided to have my children. I, I met a new woman. My kids had missed my, um, because of college and the military. My son's 19 now. I saw him a lot. I used to take him to school with me, actually. Uh, he'd sit in class with me because I was like kind of a single parent at the time. I mean, his mom broke up and was going through things and he needed to stay with me. But even though he was there, he was still like, it was more of a job. It was like, okay, I got to do this so we can provide for you, so you come with me. It wasn't like I just got to see him running around playing every day because I was studying most of the time. And then when I went to military, when I moved to California, I didn't see him. And then I went to the military, of course, I didn't see him for four years. So when I came back home, you know, I got to see him. But now he's a teenager. It's different. I'm trying to spend as much time with him, but he want to hang with his boys now. So I didn't get to see that. And then my daughter's mom, she left me in California with my daughter. And I didn't get to see her much at all. Still don't. So I just took that time to have my own children who are six and four now. Um, Little girls, right? Yeah, yep, Dario and Donna. So took that time was a stay-home dad for about two years while she was pregnant and doing, you know, I worked, but I became stay-home dad just to help her out. And uh, I loved it, man, reading to my kids, just just raising them, just making up for some of that time I missed. Mother, daughter, mother, kids. Yeah, it sucks. It sucks being gone, man. Hell yeah. Because they don't understand. It's not like I could write them letters and shit all the time where they could read. And, you know, back then, we weren't FaceTiming or nothing like that, so. Sure. Would you say that was probably the worst part, being in the military? Being away from my kids? Yeah. Yeah, def- by far the worst part. I think all of us that have kids that deployed, like, would definitely say that was easily the worst part. Yeah, definitely. More so, the worst part is not knowing if you ever come home again. That's it, man. But the kids are on my mind all the time, you know what I mean? Because it's like, uh, you know, like, the second time, first time I deployed, I wasn't married. Second time, I was married with a kid. And, like, I wasn't worried about my wife, right? Like, I was like, well, if I get killed something happens to me like you know she's a grown adult she'll be fine right but it was like my kid like fuck she gonna tell him you right. know what i mean like what is he what is he gonna how's this gonna affect him growing up without a dad mm-hmm. uh especially when you're doing it for them because in the back right. of my mind every day i'm out there i'm you know doing it for my kids so yeah i feel you on that man that was definitely the worst we talked to a lot of like older navy vets man and like uh, i don't know if the ships are uh, more high tech these days but they said they used to like is it saltwater showers you guys got to take on? Yeah, there? man, it, it's like hell. You see me, hey, you know, if y'all can't tell, I'm a chocolate brother. You know what I mean? <laughs> so that water, I mean, for me, my skin is very sensitive, and it's hard water. For me, I would be, oh, I had to take a shower every day, but you'd be itching like hell. It's Look like Ashy Larry out there? Ashy fucking Larry, <laughs> hell yeah, from the knuckles to the feet knuckles. You just, so you took a shit ton of lotion with you? Hell yeah, I just get that shit in my care package, man. <laughs> got to the point, I told him, send me Vaseline, this lotion wearing off too <laughs> Fuck that, I come out shiny as hell. How, how was the food out there on the boats, man? For us, the food was bomb because we always knew we was going back over. Remember, I told you we had to go from Iraq to Afghanistan. So for us, man, it was good for us because they knew uh, we was getting steak, 
Anybody that knows the Navy or been on a carrier, when you get steak, lobster, and crab, you know you're about to go do some shit. So we were getting a lot of that shit, man. Uh, the food was excellent. And plus, I did my TAD in the galley, so I got to meet a lot of chefs. I, did my, I had to do my TAD when I first got there because they needed me to be ready for whenever. So um, I did my 90 days quick and got to learn how to maneuver in the kitchen. So I go in there and make my own shit, you know, get my own steaks, and then you got your boys in there. So, But other than that, the food was, food was excellent, man. What, what was the worst part of being on a ship? trying to find somewhere to have sex <laughs> that was the honestly other than that everything else for me was was gravy actually the worst part about being on this but that is true so those navy guys out there know you don't want to go in that refrigerator i've heard like the supply ncos or whatever that like had their own storage rooms and shit yeah, like they yeah. would rent them they'd rent them out <laughs> yeah you go in the storage room it's like a big ass pipe you have to go in and then climb under the pipe you're up against the wall and shit you, you know you got coveralls on so it's just awkward Especially if you got caught, because hopefully you got a cool lookout, but if not, you know, you're in trouble. So I never got caught. I say What's the punishment if they catch you? I don't know. I never got caught. You got to understand, a lot of guys, when we go over, they get off the boat and they go anything they can see. I just didn't do that. I had a girl, but I did. And I wasn't, I wasn't faithful, but I just find something on the boat and just rock out with that for that time we were over there. And then, But the worst shit on the, the carrier, actually, is there's so much going on it's very 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 dangerous from top to bottom doesn't matter where you are there's so many people so many mechanics so many jets turning so many helos you know getting refueled and moving i mean the worst part is just not knowing if a fucking fuel tanker drop on your head while you're walking through yeah. the hangar or if you get blown off by jet blasts or anything jp fuels i mean it's just the worst part is not knowing what's happening next burden the burden next to you or you, you're up on the flight deck and some shit's happening down in the hangar and you don't know about it because you got to put the if it's a fire we got to put it out you know we yeah called paramedics or firemen so you know we've lost some people just from freak accidents on the, on the boat so the worst part is the danger of it's like everything around you can fucking operation. kill you every fucking thing can fucking kill you we talked to a guy a couple episodes back that he worked on the uh, on the flight line, and he would like direct them in at night and shit. And there was one of the birds that was so quiet, like you couldn't hear it. It was one of the prop birds, right. and he says he goes out at night and he comes like I don't know within like two feet of it, but it's so whisper quiet, like he almost like walked right into the fucking prop of this thing while we're running. His fucking head off, cut everything off. It's just like we've had stories of people getting sucked up in jet engines, getting blown over. Uh, I remember one time they they said a guy I didn't see it, but I think he was on our ship, maybe the tour before us. His girl head got blown over. I don't want to call him a dumbass, but he dove in to save her. She was all right with, like, just maybe ankle injuries, some bruises. They got them both, but he broke his back because he dove in. Oh, shit. I mean, so it's like all kind of shit. Because that's high. That's, a, yeah, that's really high as fuck to yeah. die from. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's where he, he messed up because he tried to dive in after her. So anything could happen, man. It's just. Yeah, fuck that. <laughs> and then if you get spits and shits, I don't know if that is, but the whole boat, oh, man the whole boat get it then you know you gotta deal with that so it's just like all kind of shit goes on about that people don't know about what was the best part about being on the ship uh, man the best part is watching us go over when we're going over the whole fleet and going up on the flight deck seeing all the ships all the planes just knowing we're in full force and we're about to go kick some ass just taking that taking that in and seeing that formation is probably the best part of because carrier group rolls with so you have the carrier you've got what a couple of destroyers yeah we, we had shit i think we had about 18 destroyers about three carriers two subs the stealth bunch of planes i can't even tell you how many planes and uh and a bunch of frigates the small boys so maybe about 20 of them so we were deep so you get on deck you look around and it's like a real like real example of like american military america might for hell yeah like you look around and you're proud to be a fucking american you're like citizen. who would want to fuck with us yeah, yeah and you know you're gonna go tear some shit up so because some of the, the subs got nukes on them and shit yep. they can reach out touch anybody anywhere and technology you know 
there's some stuff we don't even know they have. Sure. They're not tell us, and I'm glad they don't. But that's it. I mean, that's one of the best feelings in the world, man. You ever see that California Love video? Mm -hmm. when, when they're called coming across with their shit yeah man that's how you feel man. yeah like, yeah we're about to fuck some shit up and it's all love because we all you know just one team one fight we're all we know what we signed up for at that time i ain't gonna say nothing about trump i didn't mean it that way but we all knew we signed up for and so now it's like okay boys here we go you know no more workups no more practicing here we go and everybody's out there with us to support so it's dope well let's fast forward man let's talk about uh some recent events specifically we're in Pittsburgh, Steelers country, right? Big right. football town. Right. We'll talk about the protests in the NFL. Right. So you are a black man and a veteran. Yes. Also a victim of police brutality yes. yourself. Yeah, multiple times. Uh, multiple times. Right. You have multiple perspectives on this protest. I'm sure multiple different feelings about right. it. Like, what is your, when you see players take a knee, what, are, what does your gut tell you? What do you think about it? You said it right. I have multiple. And multiple meaning most of the time it's two. I could think of three, but coming without just thinking at all, I know it's two. When I see them guys take a knee, whether it's white or black, I want to pump my fist. Thanks for standing up for people like me who, I mean, some of these cops just don't get it. We're all humans. We all make mistakes. That's pretty much it. Right. Don't disrespect me for making a mistake. I don't care how grave the mistake is. Don't act like my shit don't smell just like yours. So when I see black, white, Mexican, whatever race, I give them props for taking a stance and, and not being a follower, just doing whatever you think you feel like you should do. Don't do it because the next man is doing it. Because if you're doing it because the, the next man is doing it, unless you're supporting that next man, you know, I'm a little indifferent, but if you're doing it because that's what you want to do because you believe in that shit, I'm all for it, man. I love it because it's you're taking a stand for something that you obviously see is a problem out here in the United States. I'm not worried about the world. Let's talk about here now and what you believe in should be changed. And I don't think it ever changed, but I'm glad that you're going to take a knee on. A lot of these guys come from poor neighborhoods in the NFL. Right. A lot of these guys are black and have been victims of the same thing in their cousins and their sisters and their moms. You know, moms, you know, dads are, are being victimized. Grandmothers, you know. I've seen many YouTube videos where cops are just putting old ladies on the ground and doing shit. So a lot of people have to deal with that at home. So use your platform to make a stance. I support it. But then I have, remember I said multiple. I have two feelings about that, though. So, And as far as me being a victim of police brutality as well, I want them to make a change. But I know it's not going to happen. But I support those guys taking a knee for the, the batons, hits I got, you know, I took to the ankles. You know what I mean? Right. Because I'm still upset about that. And it makes me not trust police now. Sure. As a black man and because I was a victim of it. That wasn't the first incident. You know, I grew up in Larmer Avenue who, people know Larmer Avenue is in East 30 out of town where there was gangs and, and drugs and all that shit. So the cops were rampant. Pretty much born in Homewood from 5 to 13 years old. So as a kid, I saw the cops out there, you know, messing with guys. And, and you know, it was a little worse back then because they were just, I don't know, man. Crack had just hit the neighborhood when I was young. And they were just doing whatever to these guys. Then as I got older, when I moved to East Liberty from 15 on, they had the task force now, and these guys think they're like the biggest and hardest and toughest dudes out there, and so they're just running out, jumping on people, slamming people for no reason. You might be playing basketball on a basketball court, but if they suspect you are holding anything in your mouth or in your pocket, they just come run up on you and slam you and stuff like that, punch you and stuff. So I endured that my whole life in Pittsburgh, and I've seen a lot of people and know people who went through it a lot more than I did. Um, look at Leon Ford. Uh, if anyone knows Leon Ford mm -hmm. in Pittsburgh, he was a victim of police brutality. But he had to take a couple bullets, take five bullets, and now he's paralyzed. Good thing he's trying to walk again, but they said he'd never walk again. All over a traffic stop that could have been avoided. So, I, you know, I give those guys props for just standing up for whatever they believe in, especially if they're doing it for themselves. Would you take a knee? If I was at a Steelers game, no. I love my city too much. I've been honored by the Pirates. I've been honored by the Penguins. I love Pittsburgh. I'm born and raised in Pittsburgh. So when I'm home, knowing that I went overseas and fought for our country and I've met some wonderful people, I've lost some great friends in here, 
I've seen a lot while I was just in my time in the military, and I remember 9-11. You know, we believe that the plane I went over to Duquesne University uh, was the plane that crashed in Shanksville because they're hitting. So when I'm at home, there's, I think there's too much pride. Even though the shit that happened to me happened to me in Pittsburgh, I forgive them assholes because they're never going to take my pride away from my city, my black, my black and gold pride. I'm never going to say, fuck them, I'm leaving Pittsburgh because the cops are racist or they beat my ass. So for at my home stand, I don't think so because when I see that flag, no matter what event I'm at, whether it's a penguin game, power game, stiller game, I have mixed emotions when I when they play that song. So it's weird too being in Pittsburgh, man, because I'm not from here originally. I'm from Alabama, but like coming to Pittsburgh, like Pittsburgh has a unique history uh, related to race and sports. Right. I don't know. Most people know this, but the Pittsburgh Pirates were the f first team ever to field an entire lineup, one through nine, of all black or Hispanic players, and it, it wasn't intentional. Right. You know, Manny Sanguin, the catcher, talks about you know squatting behind home plate, looking out and saying like, "Holy shit, no, no white dudes out here right now." Right. Uh, it's just the managers want to put the best nine on the field. Football, we got the Rooney Rule, man, because like owners of the Steelers thought like, "Hey, this is bullshit." Only white coaches get interviews for jobs. So, like, they made it a policy to always interview people of color for these right. positions. So, like, it's real complex dynamic in Pittsburgh with race being kind of interwoven into, like, the, the sports culture as well. I feel like the Pittsburgh sports teams have been on the right side of these issues most of the time. But it's complicated, for sure. Right. I think so, man. And that goes back. I mean, remember, we had the homestead grades. Negro baseball was used. Josh Bell, Satchel Page, yeah, man. man. And so I felt like they felt their hand was... I'm not going to say they were forced, but because of the old steel mills and people were working together, they were working and they were like, hey, you know, we're not in the South. We're going to go watch the game together. We're going to go to these games together, share a hot dog. And, you know, Pittsburgh was booming at the time. Wally Avenue in the Hill District, I mean, you had all the celebrities coming just to hang out there. Yeah. Black, white, rich, probably, you know, Pittsburgh always had that culture of just being integrated, whether it was the Germans who came in on the north side or the Italians from down Larmer Avenue. Um, or the Polish, the Polish Hill. So we've always had that integration. And I think that's one of the reasons we have a lot of pride in our youth sports, uh, not just football. So everyone says Pittsburgh is a great place to put, be young and play football uh, because a lot of great kids, you know, we got a lot of great peewee leagues, but it's a lot of great little soccer teams and baseball teams. So I think um, that dynamic of everyone working together in the steel mills and stuff like that uh, helped the kids end up playing together and they kind of got comfortable being on the same teams together. And so it just carried on traditionally in the city. Uh, we were just fortunate enough to have the Roonies, not paved the way, but kind of sacrifice some of their values or money or belief or uh, business uh, ventures to support a lot of the things going on in Pittsburgh, especially when it comes to black athletes, you know, white, whoever wants to play the sport. They never, a lot of teams, even the Penguins and the Pirates, they never really put a racial stigma on who they put out to play. Except when Terry Bradshaw, if y'all remember Joe Gilliam, I uh, used to be a great quarterback when Terry Bradshaw was winning all the Super Bowls. A lot of people believed he was a better fit for the Steelers than Bradshaw was. But because he was black, he wasn't going to get, you know, he didn't get the time to play in those Super Bowls. But we won. You know, when you're a coach, you got to make some tough decisions. Right. So if we won, even if it was a black and white issue, how can you say, okay, it was a black and white issue when, it, when we won? If we would have lost, and I could see them bringing that up. So as for me, I even pushed that to the side, man. I think we just did do a great job as a city in a whole. I mean, Pittsburgh has this racial shit. Issues, I mean, yeah, for knows. sure. Everyone knows. I think we hide it well, but everyone knows. But at the same time, when it comes to sports, I think we're, it's just a level playing field, man. We, I think we really do a good job, and I think our organizations 
you know, they, they make sure that uh, I think that they do and say the right things and make people feel comfortable playing for their organizations and supporting the organization. Yeah, that's kind of one of the most uh, I don't know, frustrating things about this whole thing. I am in agreement with you 100% about the players, man. Like, I've, I don't know anyone that I served with that, like, joined the military so people couldn't exercise their rights, right? right like, right. whether you agree with them or not, like, that, that's not the point. It doesn't fucking matter if you agree with them. It's the fact that, like, they should be able to exercise their rights because, I mean, that's their fucking rights. Constitution gives them those rights. Right. Uh, so, like, the most disappointing thing for me is because, like, sports typically is, like, brings people together, right? But now, like, there's so much vitriol around, like, this topic that it's it's divisive almost. Uh, and I'm, that's not the fault of the players, man. That's, like, that's the fault of the, in my opinion, just the ignorant assholes that want to be upset and mad about it. You know what I mean? Like, it's not really dividing young people. Let's be honest. Like, right. we're all pretty much on the same page with this shit. It's the old dudes. And it's social media. A lot of copycats out here in this world, man. Monkey see, monkey do. If you don't like right. it, I don't like it. Right. You know, so... That's what I said. It's an issue that's going to go around for a while. I don't think they'll resolve that. But one day I would like to see everybody either stand or take a knee. You know, let's get some unity out here. Yeah. The bigger issue is us. It's not about the flag or ticket sales or, you know, appeasing someone else. It's about taking care of us, each other. So, well, that's my thing, that man. Shit out, then we'll be all right. I, you know, I get upset when I see players taking a knee and not like because they're taking a knee because like that's their flag too but they don't feel that way right. they don't feel that flag represents them man and that's a fucking shame right. like that anybody in this country should feel that that flag doesn't represent them like that's fucking bullshit like that's not what any of us fought for you know what i mean we right. fought for the rich white guy in fucking massachusetts just as much as like the poor black kid in homewood you know what i mean like right. we fought for everybody like right. that we are we're all on the same team man whether we like it or not you know what i mean like right. it's like a big family dude like we need to get our shit together and have each other's backs. That's why I get pissed when, like, you'll hear black people say, man, fuck that, they ain't fighting for us. What are you talking about? What do you mean we're not fighting for you guys? I'm fighting for my children to grow up and live in a better world so we're not getting attacked and shit. Right. You know what I mean? So it just shows you how, like you said, they don't believe the flag is theirs. And some of these people, you know, have been born and raised here, just like myself. Some may have fought. If they didn't fight for this country, maybe their uncle or granddad or brother or sister did. So I feel you on that or how it, you know, upset you because it just shows that you know, everyone's not treated equal here. You know, some people don't have the freedoms that some of us have. So, fucked up situation. But America was built on this. So yeah. It's going to take a long time. It's in our blood. Yeah, it's going to take a lot longer for us to patch it up. But I don't know, hopefully we see it in my time. I mean, we did see a black president in my lifetime. They said that that had never happened. So, we might be making strides. Maybe it's good that they're protesting because maybe one day somebody will say, hey, no, you know what? This is some bullshit. Let's figure out a way to get it right. You know, let's figure out a way to where we can put this behind us and go back to celebrating the game that we love or the sport that we love you know what i mean yeah that's the comforting thing i guess like um take yourself back to 1999 right yeah, and then imagine you know. someone asking you how long do you think it'll take before we have a black president and gay marriage is legal man what would your answer have been in 1999 man. i remember 1999 well that was my sophomore year in college i wouldn't have believed it you would have said what 30 40 like, 50 man, years 20, maybe right 30 years yeah yeah man i did you know, it just didn't seem like it was going to happen at that time. We just kept thinking we we're going closer and closer and closer, but it didn't happen. So when Clinton went in there, was like, hey, there's your black president, because he played the saxophone right. in Arsenio Hall. You know what right. I used to play them on, man. But that's how a lot of black Americans felt. I hate to say it. I don't want to stereotype nobody, put words in nobody's mouth. But from the chatter that I heard around when he was in there, I mean, y'all, you've all heard it. People would say, you know, y'all got your black president. So at 99, we didn't think that, and especially gay marriages. Whoa legal when it was frowned upon they had just took in 99 remember they had just taken religion out of schools you couldn't even fathom that a couple years later not even 10 years later uh gay marriages would be legal it's crazy you know, in 99 we were teasing richard simmons 
for all them damn videos he was coming out with. You know what I mean? Right. You know, it was just crazy. So that's comforting, man, because things can change quickly. Real quick. They can change real quick. Public opinion could change. I mean, yeah, even with just gay marriage, like the polling, like polling in the 90s, like do you think gay marriage should be legal? It was like, fuck, 20, 30% approved of it. And then now 95% of like people under the age of 50 are supportive of it. So that's, I mean, I think that's something to be hopeful for. I'm glad you brought that up. But if you remember, just like the knee issue, they fought for that. There was a lot of people protesting yeah. for years. They were going to other cities getting married illegal, well, legally in that state, but not in their home. And right. they, they were fighting, going to the politicians, going to the polls. So, you know, they fought for that and good for them. You know, I'm not in support of it. I'll be honest. You know, I just never, that was never my cup of tea. And what, sometimes I realize it doesn't affect me. You know, I don't love that person. That person loves that person. If that's what they want, and if they fought for it and, and they won, then let them enjoy their time, man. That's what it takes. It takes fighting for it. Like, nobody's just going to give anybody rights, man. Right. If that's one thing we should learn from American history. And who am I to judge? People don't just give rights away. They're hard as fuck to get. Yeah. But once you get them, they're hard to take away, too. Right. What else? Do you got out of your way to, like, engage youth? All the time. Man. I've been doing this forever. This is nothing new. Growing up, I, I'm going to give you a little bit about my background so you can see where this passion comes from. Uh, my mother was on crack cocaine. Once my dad left, she just, I guess, spir- it sent her to a spiral. So, you know, I pretty much had to fend for my little brother. My older brother was already, he moved my grandmother. So my little brother and my sister, so I had to follow her around and go through some of the same things that some of these kids whose family member or mother or guardian or father might be experiencing on a drug. Okay. That's not just, it's not just going to be crack cocaine because... There's kids out here everywhere whose family may have some kind of habit, whether it's alcohol, sugar. I mean, whatever the fuck it is, there might be something out there. And so I had to go through the trials of that for about 13 years of trying to wonder where's mom, when she's coming home, and also making sure there's food to eat and stuff like that. So once I got through that, and she's clean now, probably like 17 years, thank God. But once I got through that, that's when I ended up going to the school, Kiski Prep. I went to a school called Westinghouse in Homewood where we, there was a metal detector. You carry guns to school. I used to take a 12th grade 7 and 357 Magnum in school every day. My brother was a Crip. When he, him and Sean, remember I told you him and my cousin joined the Buddy Pass? They both were Crips. So when they decided to leave the Crip game to go to the military, someone called my grandmother and was like, if Darnell leaves, we're killing your whole family. So my grandma's a religious lady. And she used to have a saw at her house, so it scared the hell out of her. So she shared it with the family. But my brother, they were like, we're gone. You know, we're trying to do something better for our family. So they left. Before my brother left, he came and gave me this little brown little bag with like a tan fucking stripe on it with a one-shot 12-gauge that every time you shot it, it broke apart with duct tape on it and a 357 Magnum. It was like, protect our family. I was only like 15, 16. Um, but that's what was going on in the neighborhood at the time. That's a lot of weight to put on the shoulders yeah. of a 15-year-old. Yeah, but I, but you understand, we ain't had no uncles, no dads, so I looked up to my brother. Sure. So if you told me to do that, that's what I'm going to do. And so I used to take it to school, you know. Westinghouse was a crip neighborhood, and I, I had now moved to East Liberty, which was Marmon Hoods. They were all black. But just growing up in that lifestyle with the gangs and the drugs, and, you know, I, I was one of those kids. So now that I I was able to go to Kiski Prep after that, you know, a great school in, out in Salzburg, Pennsylvania, you know, uh, boarding school, and gave me some other values. I already had the religious values from my parents and taught me how to just be around other people. You know, the inner city was predominantly black. You go to Kiski, you know, one of my best friends is from Korea. Another one of my best friends was from Germany, you know, and of course the people that was from Pittsburgh. So I ended up building some great relationships there. Then I went back home when I had my son. I tried to get back into that same lifestyle, and it just wasn't, I just wasn't feeling it no more. So two years later, that's when I applied to Duquesne. I had already got scholarships like Bucknell and stuff for football, so Duquesne had accepted me when I was in Kiski, so I applied there. When I went to Duquesne, I got accepted. I did well there, you know, played ball, graduated even though it took five years, but I had my son. All during that transition, I was still seeing the people that I left behind in the neighborhoods. 
these kids were growing, they were going through this, this and that, going to jail, going, you know, getting killed. Um, mom's not doing too well. So I kind of felt blessed that I was able to do and achieve these things, kind of like I still do now. Then I joined the military, you know, so I'm able to see the world and I'm serving my country and I'm meeting great people. And then I come home and I see the same people. So all through that, every time I would see a child or someone I knew in the community, I would always try to teach them either something valuable, like a lesson that they can remember or how to be a man. I, you know, I wasn't into just feeding them money just so they can go to the store. I wanted to feed them some knowledge. Yeah. So I, I started a school called the Neighborhood Academy in Pittsburgh. Um, by me going to Kiski, they modeled that after me and said, hey, these at-risk youth can learn, which sounds fucked up today, but at the time, that was their slogan. I raised like, helped raise like $10 million for that school because of my life and going to talking to bankers and companies. And so I started mentoring to them kids while I was in Duquesne, while I was in the military. Coming back, I, when, I got, when I graduated Duquesne, I actually took my diploma, my degree, the first two, three days I had it and went and put it up in that school for like two years just to motivate some of these kids in our community just so they could see that and say, hey, I did it. So even with Paul Abernathy, great guy, I did some free volunteer service up there with him for years because um, my mom was assistant director up there. Um, yeah, so, we love Paul Abernathy yeah, right here, man. Yeah, shout out to Paul, man. And so it's always been a part of me. My mom's a, you know, she's a caring person. She takes care of everybody, feeds the homeless, cooks for the church every Sunday. We just have that in us to care about people. And by growing up the way I did, and I just want to teach these kids that, hey, you know, you are somebody. And if no one's going to pat you on the back and say, good job, or show you how to do this, then I got all the time in the world to teach you. So when, when I'm with the Mission Continues, I get around these kids and I see myself in them. It doesn't matter if it's a five-year-old, a six-year-old, a 15-year-old, a 20-year-old. I see myself in them and I just give them the same game. I call it game, but it's knowledge uh, that I wish somebody would have given me when I was their age. You know, I wish a stranger, which Jody Moore did, helped me get into the school. But I wish there was more strangers out there that actually cared about me, opposed to being worried that I'm a breaking their car. You know, right. uh, funny thing is, you can, when I was in East Liberty, I'd be walking across the street, and if there was a white or Asian or any other person in the car, all you hear is the doors locked. You yeah. know what I mean? So mm -hmm. I don't want these kids to feel that stigma. I want them to feel like, hey, you know, this guy here, and if I need any help or any questions, I can go up to him and be comfortable. Because I believe in turn, it's going to make them comfortable to approach anyone for help instead of being reserved and only asking a person that they, you know, they feel comfortable with. Right. So I just, I mean, and the smiles on their faces, man, it's crazy. Like, you can tell some of these kids be hurt when they, they come, especially home when they got the mean face. And But then take five minutes of that kid's time and they light up. So I don't know, it's motivation for me, man. I, I just love, I love helping people period you know? well there's something to be said for that right like these aren't dumb kids man not like they, at all the, it's the same spectrum of intelligence you find in any other neighborhood in the country right not at all man they surprise me a lot of stuff they say things they do I but mean, a lot of these kids like you know not to you know marginalize the issue or anything but a lot of these kids like all they really need is someone to just say hey man like i believe in you right you can do this right that's all it takes sometimes that's all they need they need some attention positive attention not negative attention you know a lot of the guys, now, now let's talk about the inner city and the blacks now, because I could relate more with that. A lot of these kids in the inner city, their dads have been in jail or dead. They're growing up with just their moms, if they got their moms. Most of the time they do. She's probably struggling. Their family support is probably not there, because it probably came from a broken home, um, where the dad's family probably doesn't mess with the mom's family. So they're out to fend for themselves sometimes. They got to learn from YouTube, and you'll be surprised how many people are teaching their kids just by giving them an iPad, and kids now, six seven eight year old know how to swipe through youtube with no monetization so they're learning from uh technological advances in social media now i want to give them a human voice man i mean i want them to believe in what i'm trying to tell them or convey to them or show them or just or just just monitor me by my actions you know what i mean 
And so that means a lot to me when we get on it. It doesn't matter if it's Homewood, Bethel Park. I don't care. I don't care what color they are. Atlanta, I wouldn't care who they are. If you're a child and, and there's something I can do to motivate you, I'm going to do it. You think there's anything uh, from your military experience that like uh, uniquely suits like those kind of situations? My core skills? values, honor, yeah. courage, and commitment. Everything that I do, I relate back to my core values. I've always heard about core values, but when I got in the military, that's just stuck. And so wherever I go or whatever I do, it's in the back of my head. I want them to grow up utilizing these core values and understanding them, understanding what it means to honor something that you believe in, to be committed to something that you believe in. You know what I mean? And have the courage to just fight for it. So, yeah, plays a big role in pretty much almost everything I do now. All right, last question, man. Uh, all the bullshit aside, because this is a loaded question at this moment, uh, would you encourage any of these kids to join the military? For sure. I only say this, be careful which branch you pick and make sure it's something that you want to do so you can end up finding some kind of passion for it or some kind of love for it because it's going to be some hard days. The Air Force is a great branch to join. <laughs> yeah, yeah join the Air Force. If you, don't you join know. the Army, don't join the Marines. Yeah. Coast Guard, Air Force, those are pretty Air good Force. branches. Be a merchant Marine, man. You might love it. Um, you know what? What I would tell them is because I don't want you to join just because you believe it's a stepping stone, you know, because it might not be a stepping stone for you. Uh, you're going you're gonna to miss out on a lot of stuff while you're serving. But for these kids out here, if you believe that it could further your career and whatever you want to do, go for it. If you don't have the means for education, if you don't know what it is to be, you know, have your own home and you're afraid of jumping out there to be an adult right ahead, you need a little more guidance, go for it. One of the reasons I joined is because I knew I needed some structure. Military provided that for me. That was one of the things for me coming out of college. I knew that I could use a little more structure. I joined for that. So if you just need some structure in your life and you can't find no other outlet, Go for it, man. It's not a terrible job. It's, I loved it. And it can open up some doors for you, not just job-wise, but you meet some wonderful people. You'll travel the world. Um, but you got to fight for it. You got to understand it. You know, you may go to war. Um, so as long as you weigh all your options out and you believe it's a good fit for you or your family or your lifestyle uh, without having the regrets because there are going to be some, yeah, I tell any, any child to go for it. All right, so now I lied because that was a really good answer, so there's going to be a follow-up. <laughs> Do you feel like everybody gets a fair shake in the military? Hell no. No? Hell no. Because of my personal experiences, no. There is hidden agendas. I don't want to talk against the military, but... Oh, no, uh, no, we're all about that on some, here, man. Uh, okay, well, f <laughs> say no. Um, <laughs> no, because they, you know, you do whatever they need you to do. It's not like you can always do what you want to do or what's best for you. And if you fall through the cracks, I mean, that's just what it is. There's not too many people that's going to care. Um, my situation, I suppose OCS had everything laid out. I made one mistake, and uh, it was like, fuck you. And then after that mistake, they always look at you and... and, and uh, judge you by that mistake you know since i got the dui i had that stigma on me the whole time i was in the military they thought you were shit bad yeah thought i was a soup sandwich as they used to call it and mm -hmm. i used to prove them wrong i'm not you know i did some great things but it doesn't matter you know there's other people you know who went through worse shit to me so i don't think everybody gets a fair share it's pretty much based on your command and and your uh what's a good word for this how you handle whatever the fuck is thrown at you in the military i'll say that if you cry about it then you might be like one of those guys that say, no, we don't get a fair share. If you just suck it up, man, up and just do your job, then you'll get through that shit because everybody's different. You got to deal with attitudes. You got to deal with people. You know, some people are just mad at you because they wiped you. You know what I mean? Like, it's too much bullshit that goes on, too many politics that go on in the military. So there's no way everyone's going to get a fair share. It would be great, but nah. Too many personalities. Uh, too many chiefs trying to... Too many to type A personalities, yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah, so, Marine. <laughs> I love the Marines, by the way. Semper Fi. Don't lie. No, I do. My two of my... Man. Marines are fucking dummies. You want to know a funny-ass story, man? So, every time I go to a Navy event, if they play the Marine fight song, I sing it word for word, and people be looking at me like, what the fuck? But, you know, I love that shit. My brothers, 
We looked up to him a lot, and when they joined, he's just going down to Paris Island, going down to Cambridge June as a child. You know, you don't you don't forget that shit. Well, how long did they stay in? Four years. They got stationed. One got stationed. My brother got stationed in Okinawa, Japan, and my cousin hit his uh, st- sergeant and got kicked out in Pendleton. What were you saying, stuff? Do you think race played any factor? I know race played a factor in it. Um, it's just gonna be hard to get racism out of everything, especially in America. But I mean, there were just some some cats that could speak that language. That's what I'll say. You could talk that talk, and you had similar uh, skin tone. Whether it was the Filipinos looking out for the Filipinos, you know, it's not just a black white issue in the military. You know, one of my boys was talking to, to me the other day about how we fought right alongside skinheads that when we out, they're you know against us, and it's true. We were in the military fighting and being the best buddies with these guys that you t- right. You took their shirt off their back. You're like, yo, where would you get that at? You yeah, know what right. I mean? Swats get tattoos. So race is always going to play a part in the military, but I think they do try to do a good job of integrating us because now guys are starting to have their own opinions, especially when it comes to politics. Uh, we're cool as hell with each other when we're over there, you know what I mean, or on the boat. So. Well, that's the thing. When you're in the shit together, none of that matters. None of it. When you're in the stink of it all together, none of that shit matters. I was talking to the other day, like, if, like, listen, I'm a white dude. I'm obviously, I'm a white guy. I get shot, right? I have zero fucking concern for the color of the skin of the guy whose blood they right. are giving me. You know what I mean? Like, right. that shit does not matter whatsoever. Right. Conversely, you get shot. You don't fucking care if it's a white guy's blood. You don't care if the blood you're getting is from a kid whose daddy was in the clan. Like, it doesn't fucking matter, right. man. That's like, that's your boy. That's your brother now. Once you separate, man, it's a different story, right? Like, right. go your separate ways. Who knows? But just like my man who committed suicide, those, my roommates, those were two white dudes. The dude that tried to commit suicide was white. I didn't think twice about helping right. him out. That was my man. Right. I had only known him about four or five weeks, but that was my man. It's, it's like your family. You know you're automatically yeah, yeah, family. So. And just like family, you're going to fucking fight a lot because that's how it is. But when it comes down to it, everybody's got each other's backs at the end of the day. Right. The good thing I love about the military, though, the U.S. military, I'll say, is because it seems like it's always getting better every year. Look at these events. Some of these events are going, man. You know, we don't give a fuck. It's every, you know what I mean? Every nationality is here. So I think the U.S. military, we're doing a better job as far as racial things. Because we just, I mean, hip-hop came out, man. We don't love Snoop Dogg. You feel what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> I believe it helps. I mean, I believe it helps. You know, times are changing and people are starting to realize, you know, you're having people with interracial relationships. We got women in the infantry. Women in the infantry. You know what I mean? So times are changing. So it'd be all right. The military's always been at the front. I mean, it's not moved as quickly as it should, but it's always moved faster than the civilian population. Yeah, because we're forced together. Yeah. We're forced forced to eat shit together and shave. Like there were black generals long before there were like black CEOs. You know what I mean? So that's one of the positives, man. Like, it's it's real hard to keep your prejudices once you join the military. Yeah, man, because you're... Because you're, they go out of their way to put you with a motherfucker that you should not like. Hell yeah. Nut to butt, <laughs> right? Yeah, nut to butt. They're like, hey, those two look like they'll fucking scrap. Hell yeah. Make them battle buddies. Yeah. <laughs> Make them do everything together. Yeah, they did a great job, I think. At least from the time, past, I'll say 20 years of breaking color barriers in the military. Because I didn't have any problems when I was in there. If anything, I was, I was the one trying to meet people. They were trying to meet me and hang out, so I've never, I never experienced that really in the military. So, Gretchen, I'm assuming you don't regret joining at all. Hell no. Hell The good and the bad, it was the all worth it. The good and the bad, it was all worth it. Hell yeah. All right, I think that's a wrap then. All right, and the shameless plug, if you're ever out and y'all see a, uh, an event in Hollywood with the mission continues, come on out and, and volunteer with us, man. We're going to have some fun. You do it or up in the hill with uh, Father Paul Abernathy. Yep, or on the, or on the hill with Paul Abernathy at Focus Pittsburgh on Center Avenue. That's right. All right, thanks so much for joining us today, man. I appreciate you no, being here. No problem, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of Longest War. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe, like, rate us on iTunes, Blueberry, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcasting app. 